Well, hey, I have the joy this morning of introducing our, our guest speaker. You guys are just getting to meet somebody who has really been influencing your lives through the lives of others for quite some time now. He, he is most famous for, for being the husband of Lori. I think that's what he's most famous for. Second to that, uh, he is Ellie's dad and Caleb's dad and Jace's dad uh, and Isaac's dad. So after that, it really falls off a lot. But he is the planting senior pastor of the Sovereign Grace Church, uh, Redemption Hill in Austin, Texas. Uh, he serves on the leadership team of Sovereign Grace. Uh, that means he, get, he gets to care for a lot of churches in addition to his own church. And, and he has been doing that for us. He's been doing that for churches in our region. He's been doing that for churches all throughout Sovereign Grace. He has become a dear friend and an influential thinker and helper in ministry to me, as well as to the whole team here locally as he sought to care for us and relate to us as well. So what a pleasure it is today to welcome to our pulpit, Mr. John Payne. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be among you this morning, and thank you for welcoming my family as well. We had the uh, joy of getting to spend a week in your city uh, for a family vacation. Keith was very kind to invite me to preach at the end of that week. So we, we've had a thorough New Orleans experience. Uh, we were able to enjoy the World War II Museum. We got to see some alligators yesterday. And then we got the vastly superior snowball uh, last night. So I've been told I'm not allowed ever again to equate that with a snow cone, which I will not. I will, I will attest, bear witness to y'all. It, it is superior. It is better. I, I, I concede it is, it is superior uh, to snow cones. Uh, but it is a joy to be here with you. Um, we, we love the partnership that we share in our family of churches. And one of the joys I have, Keith mentioned my role on the leadership team. One of the joys of being on that role is I, I get to visit a number of Sovereign Grace churches. And so I, I have the privilege of, of greeting you, not only on behalf of my own church this morning in Austin, which is even right now about to hear from God's word as we are, um, but also from our family of churches. And I was asking Keith, would, would there be anything that would be helpful for me to, to share uh, just about our partnership, our family of churches. And if, if you're newer to this church, um, this language might be unfamiliar to you. Uh, we, we commit together as churches in, in mission and to plant churches around the world. We try to serve each other as pastors so that we have a, a kind of a motto in Sovereign Grace that no pastor should pastor alone, that we should be pastoring as a, a community of, of brothers uh, serving God's people. Um, one of the other significant things we do is to see God's gospel go around the world. And as I mentioned, um, I asked Keith, what, what highlight would you like me to bring this morning? And he mentioned, well, it'd be great for the church to hear a little bit about how God is using sovereign grace around the world, because I, I've been in this family of churches now, it's 30 plus years, and I've never seen the kind of favor that we've been experiencing over the last five years uh, globally. We've, we've always sought to serve uh, around the world. I know you have as a church as well, other nations besides our own, but God has just given us an extraordinary amount of, of favor as a family of churches. And I don't know what to attribute that to other than just God's kindness and providence and, and giving us favor. 
uh, in the hearts and minds of, of some pastors and movements around the world that, that want to be connected to us, connected to you. So just a, a few highlights. Uh, for example, um, in the Philippines, uh, there are literally dozens now of churches, over 20, I think, of churches that are seeking adoption or have been adopted into our family of churches. They've, they've read our statement of faith. Uh, they've understood and explored who we are as a family committed to the gospel and sound doctrine and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were so thrilled. They said, well, can we please, would you allow us to be a part of you? And so they are now pursuing partnership. And, and, and that's remarkable because they have their own mini denomination there in the Philippines of multiple churches, pastors. They've been doing this work for many, many years now. I think their, their founding church just had its 30th anniversary and yet they wanted to be a part of us. So their pastors are seeking ordination through our ordination standards. And this last spring, just a couple of months ago, they had their first Pastors and Wives, Sovereign Grace Pastors and Wives Conference in the Philippines, uh, where our executive director, Mark Prater, went over and spoke along with other uh, pastors from Sovereign Grace were there. And they had people represented from South Korea and there was people from Australia that were there, multiple people from the Philippines. And so God just is doing a, a mighty work there in the Philippines through a man named Jeffrey Joe. And he is just remarkably, in spite of his leadership, wanting to be connected to us. So that's just one area where God is using us mightily to provide training. Another significant update is we, we just graduated the first pastor's college class from Sovereign Grace uh, in Addis Abba, Ethiopia. They, had a, a, they have a Sovereign Grace Pastors College there. They graduated a number of men who are planning on ministering in that area and perhaps we would hope one day even reaching into Somalia as well, which as you know is a very closed country to the gospel. So uh, that has taken place in Africa. We also just sent a pastor uh, from the East Coast to plant a church in Italy. He's going to be doing that with a man named Rocco, who is Italian, is going to be planting with him. And his hope is to build Sovereign Grace Italy uh, in the days to come. Another thing that's happening is in Mexico, uh, we have had two or three churches in Mexico for as long as I can remember, dear friends and partners under the leadership of Carlos Contreras. But in the last five years, uh, that partnership has just exploded. I think there's nine or so now uh, Sovereign Grace Churches in Mexico, they're pursuing adoption. I just got an update this morning. Perhaps five or so others are pursuing adoption. They are also planning on planting two churches in the coming years. Uh, so that is exploding. So it, it almost is the case that anywhere you look in the globe, God is just giving us extraordinary uh, favor with people who love sound doctrine, who love the work of the Holy Spirit, who love church partnership, and for some miraculous reason, uh, want to be connected to us. Uh, so I, I wanted to share that with you because all of that only takes place because God is doing a work among our churches here in the U.S. And for some reason, folks from around the world are seeing that partnership, seeing the values that we hold dear, that you share with us in Round Rock and that we share with other churches around the country. And, and they want to be connected to us. They want to be connected to us in mission and in church planting and in doctrinal fidelity and in faithful training of pastors. So I wanted to say on behalf of the Sovereign Grace leadership team and our partnership, thank you for being a faithful gospel preaching church and community. Um, because right now, extraordinarily, that model <laughs> is being proliferated around the world 
and coupled with partnership in multiple nations around the world. So thank you for your faithfulness over the decades, as Frank said, to be a faithful gospel-centered church here because we're now having the opportunity to seek to export that into nations around the world. So just receive my gratefulness for that and receive a, a greeting on behalf of uh, the partners in Sovereign Grace to you. It is, it is a joy to represent them and say we, we love you. It is a joy to be partnered with you. And having never been here on a Sunday, it is a joy to greet you uh, in your own family gathering. So thanks for having me and thanks for being a part of our family of churches. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, if you would open in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, I am very excited to preach this message to you. I had the joy of uh, preaching it to my church just a couple of weeks ago. We are walking through a series in the book of Revelation as a church. And when I was asking Keith, what, what would serve you, what would serve your church? Um, and he thought, well, boy, that message uh, seems like it would fit exactly into the series we're doing on worship and warfare. And I think that would be a, a great fit. And I've, I've read some of the titles uh, of Keith's messages over the last number of weeks. And I have to say, they are fantastic. So I, I'm privileged to just be jumping in. Amen. Let's thank him and the pastoral team. So I just hope I can draft behind that and uh, kind of join that series. But this passage really is, as you know if you've read it, it is magnificent. It is a magnificent peak passage in the scriptures about the worthiness of Jesus Christ. So if you would join me in reading, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And of course, we won't be able to dive into every single detail of this rich chapter, but I, I want to provide an overview of it and try to apply it uh, to our lives as Christians. Let's begin reading and let's remember as we read, this is God's word. It comes to us with authority and power to transform us. It comes aided and re-preached by the Holy Spirit. So let's read it with that expectation. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. 
And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. Lansford Hastings. Not a name that is well known to most people in history. I suspect most of you have never heard that name. Lansford Hastings, but Lansford confidently assured a group of men, women, and children that he could guide them on a shortcut on their journey to California. Instead, his route led the group through a nearly impassable terrain in brutal winter with snowdrifts more than 20 feet deep. Many of the group eventually died and never arrived at their destination. Shockingly, after promising to guide them, Lansford himself decided to leave with a different group of travelers and was never even with them on the route that he had so confidently recommended. The man himself, having directed them to this place of utter hopelessness, this literal valley of death was not even with them in the end. He claimed that he could lead them, so to speak, to the promised land. Yet tragedy struck because he proved unworthy of their trust. It seems to me that we ourselves and our culture and all of mankind in general should identify with that little group and their plight huddling, freezing, and dying in the mountains, facing brutal conditions, and having been misguided by someone who claimed they could guide them. It seems to me that this is the condition of mankind on the other side of Adam's failure. We face... Don't we? Mountains of danger and in, in uncertainty. We face storms of dreadful calamity. Immoralities pile around us. Even the securities of our own country in recent decades have seemed like a false hope for the future. The 20th century, for example, saw more slaughter of fellow men than many previous centuries combined. And the first 23 years of this new millennium, if they are any indication, we live as a huddled mass in the midst of a valley of death with no certain guide on this earth 
to lead us to the promised land. Where is the world to look in the midst of the catastrophe that is the human race? Where is the world to look? Who is worthy to guide from the valley of death to the promised land? Who is worthy to rectify this disaster? We find ourselves vulnerable as well often. We see sickness and global intrigue and aggression. And most importantly, we see the darkness of our own hearts. And we can ask that same question. Who is worthy? There is not a more important question in the Bible. There is not a more important question in all of life. There is not a more important headline in every newspaper or news website in history than that question. Who is Worthy. Who is worthy? Well, John is granted a vision that answers, definitively answers that question. I'm going to walk through this passage in something of an overview in, in three overarching sections. All right. The weeping of hopelessness. That's section number one. And then the worthiness of the lamb. And then the worship of heaven. But first, the weeping of hopelessness. Now you have to dive in with me because we've been walking through this as a church. So I'm going to do quickly what we've been taking weeks to do, but I'm trusting you'll understand some of the symbolism here. We have to walk quickly through this opening section. The, the passage begins jumping right in to the symbolism of revelation. And as you know, if you've read the Bible, revelation is theology by picture. It's not a scientific description of heaven. We shouldn't get to heaven and think, well, Jesus looks literally like a lamb. No, no, no. This is symbolism communicating a point. This is a spiritual vision that communicates very real spiritual reality. So Jesus doesn't physically look like a lamb, but in terms of the vision, it communicates something very important about him. For example, or in this case, we have a scroll. Now, we're not to think that God walks around day after night with a scroll in his hand. The point is, symbolically, there's something that is to be revealed here. And this scroll, as we find out in the book, it reveals all of God's purposes for blessing and judgment for humanity. So John sees this scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And this scroll is, is written on the Front and the back indicating a, a fullness of revelation. And it's sealed. And these seals would have been of the time a way of demonstrating the author's authority. And daring anyone to break the seal who did not have his permission. That's the point of these seals. They basically communicate, don't you dare open this unless you have a right to. Because God himself has sealed this document and as we find out, this document reveals all of God's purposes. And so you better not open the seal unless you can take that job. That's the idea of this imagery. The strong angel in verse 2 calls out this question with a loud voice. Who is worthy to take this scroll and to open the seals? Dennis Johnson, the commentator, helps us understand what would go into opening a scroll like this from God the King himself. He says, the opening of the scroll would be not only an act of revelatory disclosure, so he's not just going to reveal something, but also an act of executive authority, carrying its edicts into action. The things written in the scroll must take place 
because they constitute God's plan for history, culminating in the vindication of his servants and the unchallenged establishment of his dominion on earth as it is in heaven. The strong angel's question is not merely who is worthy to reveal God's plan, but also who is worthy to carry out God's plan, who deserves to receive from the Father's hand all authority in heaven and earth to make the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what's packed into this question from this angel, who is worthy? We might paraphrase, who can bring hope to a hopeless world? Who can rescue humanity that's been led into the valley of death? Who can bring about a new creation and bring to a righteous conclusion the old creation? Who can bring righteousness and justice to a world mired in hypocrisy and villainy? Who can bring about God's design for all of human history? Or to put it more directly, who dares open the scroll? Who dares? Do you? Do I? To take the task of righting every wrong, of guaranteeing Every victim absolute vindication of perfecting perfect justice and even more impossibly of redeeming some of mankind so that the whole thing isn't a total loss. Who dares open that scroll, take that job? Who has a sufficient resume to sign up for this task? That's what the angel is asking. Who is Worthy. Who is worthy? And upon an initial search, in verse 3 we are told, no one was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one. And John weeps. So I've titled this section, The Weeping of Hopelessness. John weeps, and we need to pause for just a moment and consider John's tears. You see down there in the passage, I began to weep loudly because no one was found. I began to weep. We have to pause and consider these tears. Why was no one found? Well, no one was found because of the depth of the problem. The problem was deep. It wasn't just to defeat the wicked tyrants on the earth. If that was the problem, well, then God's angels could have easily done the job. If it was just defeating wickedness, that was easily done. Any one of a number of angels could have wiped out all the wicked on the earth with no problem. So it's not just defeating wickedness. It's not even just writing Writing the wrongs that have been done on earth because God is able in himself to obliterate all sinners in a moment. It's not producing better human structures on earth. Because probably a number of great human leaders aided by God could have produced a more productive earth. A more productive world. A more blessed existence on earth. It was deeper than that. The real challenge was to somehow redeem a remnant of humanity so that Adam's people weren't just left to die or be judged in that valley of death. That was the real challenge. Who could do all of that? And the answer was no one. No one was found. No person, no angel, no heavenly creature was found able 
to complete that task. So John weeps. And we need to remember these tears. We need, I need to remember these tears. Because these tears reflect the reality of life without Christ. The reality of life in the world in the future without Christ is weeping. The weeping of hopelessness. John is weeping and it contradicts the lies of human superiority and progress. These tears contradict the lies of human superiority and progress. Every age has people that tout the superiority and progress of the human race. John weeps and it contradicts the lie that humans will fix themselves eventually. That humans can fix the world eventually. John says no, because nobody's worthy. No president, no social studies major, no promoter of some new method for mankind can fix the problem facing the world. John says, no, I wept because from God's perspective, nobody can fix this thing. It contradicts the lies of human superiority. Now, now sometimes I think we're not so much caught up in those lies as honestly, we're just currently comfortable in our life and we are going through a phase where we're not experiencing lots of suffering. And so we are intoxicated by our own comfort and we forget to weep about the condition of the world. So sometimes we're overly optimistic about the progress of the human race. Sometimes we're just intoxicated by comfort. We're like, well, right now life's good and I don't want to worry about the parts of the world that aren't. But John weeps because he knows people that are suffering. He knows humans that have defied God. He knows the wickedness of sin and tyranny and injustice. He knows the vulnerability of his dear friends in those churches. He, he knows those things and he cares about them. He's concerned for them. He doesn't want there to be no hope and no future. So he, he weeps. He looks out at the world and he sees nothing but condemnation and judgment ahead if no one can open this scroll. And so he weeps. It's possible if we don't identify with his weeping that we're also intoxicated by our own current comfort. And we need to be affected by his tears. Listen, mankind in this world is an airplane on fire, smoking and heading over a cliff and down to condemnation. And if that doesn't cause you to cry, then perhaps we've been intoxicated by our own current comfort. John weeps. John weeps because he says this thing is a disaster. If nobody can rescue this thing or, or somehow bring a redemption, there's nothing in the future but judgment or endless cycles of cynicism and hopelessness and death and tyranny and rage and conquest and blood. I see it stretching before me endlessly until God decides to wrap it all up and throw it away. That's the future that John sees. And so he weeps. John is not intoxicated by his own comfort. He grieves the hopelessness of the world if there is no Savior. If we never grieve, it's possible we become too intoxicated with our own current place of comfort. If we grieve all the time, and perhaps that's some of you, and every news report just causes you to, what's this world coming to? Bad! It's all bad. All of the headlines are bad. You ever notice the percentage of bad to good headlines? 
It's not because the world is uniquely bad right now. It's because the world is mostly bad. It has, sometimes has good. Good. It'll have some feel-good story about somebody who helped somebody across the street somewhere. And then it'll be like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a war, 15 murders and a flood. But, you know, be grateful. She made it across the street because the Boy Scout helped her. I mean, it's like, how am I supposed to balance that out? If that's you, if, if you wake up at night and think, how is, how is this world going to work for my children, my grandchildren? How are they going to face what's going on around here? These next verses are for you. They are for you. So John moves from the weeping of hopelessness to the worthiness of Christ. That's point number two. The worthiness of Christ. Verse 5 has to be one of the sweetest verses in Scripture. Doesn't it? One of the sweetest verses in Scripture. One of the elders comes to John and says, Weep no more. Weep no more. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve the sorrows of this age, but we grieve as those who have hope. We don't weep the tears of hopelessness. We grieve, but as those who have hope. So this elder comes to you and to me and to Johnny says, Weep no more. Someone has been found. Someone has been found that dares to take the scroll, who is worthy to take the scroll. Weep no more. Why? Not because giddy optimism or some idyllic view of human progressive thinking. No, no, because there's a person who can take this scroll, who can take this job, this monumental task. There is someone who can take this task. He says, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This conquering ruler who came from the bereft family of David like a root out of dry ground. That person has conquered. He is a victor. He is a mighty conquering king. He is the one that David couldn't be, but he looked forward to. The one that Israel had longed for, but never experienced. He is the one that had been prophesied, but was unknown. This one has been found and he is worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to take the job. That impossible job, righting every wrong, defeating every wickedness, redeeming a portion of humanity, bringing about a new creation. There's someone, miraculously, who can take that job. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now John, having heard, turns to see. And the vision he sees is just as important as the description he heard. Remember, this is a theology by picture book. It is communicating truth by vision, by symbolism. And so John turns and he sees between the actual Greek there is in the middle of the throne, in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures which represent creation. That's from chapter 4. And among the elders that represents the church. That's from chapter 4 as well. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I saw a lamb. Now, earlier in Revelation, in chapter 1, we had already been told that Jesus Christ was the one who suffered and died for his people and yet was speaking in the glory of his resurrection. 
And here, the theological vision makes this point by describing him as a lamb with the marks of slaughter still on him. Now, John would have been very familiar with this. John was used to the temple and the thousands of sacrifices that took place on the Passover week. He was very familiar with the kind of slaughter marks that would go on a lamb. A a dead lamb, having been slaughtered for sacrifice, looked very familiar to John. And that's what he sees. But somehow this lamb, having been clearly slaughtered, is now standing. The sacrificial victim, having been taken to death, is now alive. And alive, miraculously standing in the middle of God's own throne. From the Old Testament, the idea of a lamb as a substitutionary victim... In the place of a sinner was a precious gift to God's people. The idea was you would lay your hands on the lamb or the priest would. And he would confess all of your sins over him. And then the priest would slaughter that lamb. And the clear implication was that lamb died instead of me. He carried all of my guilt, my reputation and wrong. And he was killed the way I should have been killed. And he died in my place. So that whole idea of substitution was very clear from the Old Testament. And then when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he makes this connection clear by saying, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus as a lamb is communicating that Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for his people. The one who dies in place of sinners. The one who is slaughtered with their reputation on his head. The one who dies so that they don't have to die. So when John turns to see the lion and he sees a lamb. It's quite a surprising mixture of terms. The lion is a lamb. And he's not just incidentally a lamb. He's not just accidentally a lamb. He's not even just a lion who at one point was a lamb. No, no, John's making a more important point. Because all of the songs that follow call him worthy because he died for sinners. So John's point is he is a lion because he was a lamb. He is a lion because he died. He is worthy because he was sacrificed. He didn't happen to die. And then through his might was victorious over death. And now we're celebrating his power. He is a lion. He is worthy only because he died in place of sinners. The one thing that no angel could do, however mighty and strong, was to bring about redemption. A lot of angels, amen. A lot of angels could have crushed God's enemies. And look around, you're seeing a bunch of them right here in this room. They could have crushed God's enemies, but no angel could redeem sinners. But here is a lion who is a lion because he is a lamb. He's a lion because he died. He's a lion because he suffered. He's a lion because he was slaughtered and then raised up. He's a lion because he died in place of sinners. And now the scroll that includes not just judgment, but redemption can be opened. Every angel that goes through that scroll say, well, I can, I can do part of this. I can do part of this, but I can't do the other. I can judge, but I can't redeem. Every human goes, well, I can fix a few things on earth, but I can't redeem these people. I can't die for these people. I'm a sinner myself. There's one that goes and says, I can do that. I can do that. I will die for them and I'll restore creation. 
I can take that scroll. So he, he is the lion because he is the lamb. This is what Dennis Johnson says to make the point. The slaughter suffered by the lamb is the way he has overcome. His death is the victory that makes him worthy to open the scroll. Therefore, the slaughtered sacrifice stands no longer dead, but now alive forevermore and ready to open and execute God's plan for the denouement of his mortal combat against the dragon and his forces. Standing in the midst of God's throne, if you are a Christian, is your payment. Are you a sinner? I am. Are you a sinner? Do you need a payment for sins? Do you need a redemption? Do you need something that can represent you before God better than you? I do. I do. Guess what? The lamb, where does he stand? Not in some fringe part in history. And he doesn't just stand there as a mighty warrior that we can look to for confidence and hope to judge all those other wicked people on the earth. He stands there as our payment. Our payment stands in the middle of the throne. Our payment, our living personal punishment paid. Stands in the middle of God's throne, alive and yet bearing the marks of his slaughter. Why does that matter? Well, because for all of history, there hovers over the universe. How did these people get in here? Right there. Because of him. And wherever you are in heaven, wherever you are in heaven... You only have one place to look as a reminder of why you're there. Right there. There he is. Not just gleamed up and shining in his victory. No, still bearing, still bearing the marks of my payment. For all of eternity, Jesus Christ will demonstrate that he is the substitute for my sin and yours. He bears them so that all of eternity and every angel and God himself bears witness. There is one reason he was worthy. And there's one reason that we get to be there and celebrate his worthiness. Because he died in place of sinners. And therefore, he is the lion of Judah. So, if you are here and you are not a Christian. And maybe you're here because your mom and dad are here and you've come to this church a long time or some other church. And you knew all about Jesus. And you got, listen, listen, this is a personal invitation to you that if you believe in Jesus, that he will be like a lamb that died instead of you, that he'll pay for your sins. So this is a personal invitation. What are you doing with your life that gives you more confidence than having Jesus Christ die for your sins so that you can be with God forever? Listen, if, if you've grown up in this church, and I know the pastors want me to say this too. I say to the kids in my church, you can't get into heaven because of your parents. I mean, they're amazing, but they are not this. And when they get there, they're going to be like, man, hallelujah. I don't know how I got in here. They can't save you, but there is somebody who can. 
There is somebody who can. And if you turn to him, amen, if you turn to him, you will find salvation by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're 12 years old or 13 or 15 or whatever, and you're in here and you are being told that you've got it made because you're young, healthy and strong. No, you don't. There is only one person who can save you from that train going over the edge. And that is Jesus Christ. If you are here and you are tempted to look all the time at the catastrophe of this world and be honest, if some of you probably are, I am. There's a little headline glance there, a little browsing of the newspaper there, a little waking up at night there. If you're tempted to look at the catastrophe of this world, this passage was written to give you hope in the midst of the hopelessness. Listen, nobody's worthy. So, yeah, the world's a mess. The world, nobody's worthy. No president is worthy. No general is worthy. There's no celebrities for all their confidence. They are not worthy to save this world. There's no professor in some liberal arts department in some college worthy to fix this world. There is only one. So if you're tempted by all those voices saying, we got to fix this thing. Listen, there is one person. He's already said, I am the only one who can fix this thing. And you can turn away from that hopelessness and turn to him. Revelation 5 was given to churches and Christians who lived under the tyranny of the Roman Empire with all kinds of persecution and mockery and the surrounding idolatries of the age. Listen, their life was not worse than ours. Their life, I should say, was not better. It wasn't like they had a better life. They're facing idolatries and persecution and suffering. And so John writes to say, there is one worthy. And you can trust him. If you're here and you've been counting on some other guide for your life, perhaps, perhaps that's you. you. You're just holding on to some something that's going to make you feel a little better about tomorrow. And man, in this country, we just put a megaphone behind anybody who's willing to say, I'm the man. We give them a website and a megaphone and an ad campaign, everything else. We give it, and he's the man, and we're going to, I can fix this thing. And subtly, we can begin to turn to that person. It might be a politician, it might be a podcaster, it might be some dude with his own blog. It might be your favorite news personality, but man, they got a recipe for fixing things. It's very rare you go online or you listen to the radio and they say, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but you should listen to me because I'm going to sound like I do. No, they say, I got everything figured out and we're just going to criticize all the idiots who don't know what they're doing. That's what they all do. You know what? We're tempted to hold on to that kind of thing. That our hopes rise and fall with the fortunes of our preferred guide. That when they are in power, our hopes rise. And when they're defeated, our hopes fall. When they get promoted, our hopes rise. And when they get trounced, our hopes fall. That there's a lot of guide clinging in our country and other places around the world, but I mostly know our country. Our country, we got a lot. Hold on to this guide. This guide can get you somewhere better. There is only one good guide. 
So if, if you are a guide clinging person like I am, I, I really hope he, she, whoever, like I hope they, 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 they seem like they have a really cool route to the future. Let's, let's kind of chain ourselves up to this person. You know what? Maybe temporarily, but at the end of the day, they're a bunch, a bunch of Langsford Hughes. They will not be with you in the end. And if you chain your hopes really to them, you'll find yourself in a valley of death with no way out. Because the only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not America. It's not culture warriors. It's nobody on the radio. It's no blogger or podcaster. At the end of the day, unless they're pointing you to him, man, they are a bunch of Langsford users chaining you to a false hope that cannot get you out of the valley of death because only one is worthy to get you there. The worthy one is the lamb. And his worthiness should result in only one appropriate response. Only one appropriate response. Look down there for point number three, the worship of heaven. The worship of heaven it says when he, in verse 8, it says when he had taken the scroll. Oh, you just feel the drama of heaven. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, I can't go back and describe them, but they represent creation. You can go back and read about them in chapter 4. They represent creation. And the 24 elders, that represents the church, Old and New Testament, I'm pretty sure, represents the church. They fall down. This is like the heavenly court. They fall down before the Lamb. They're holding a harp and they're holding this incense which represents the saints. So, so they just immediately declare submission and honor. And they begin to sing this song. And I want you to just notice these words. He is worthy. The, the accent again is on because of his redemption. Is he powerful and mighty? Yes, that's what the seven horns and the seven eyes indicate. He's got all power. He sees everything. Yes, he's powerful and mighty. But the accent of their worship is on the fact that he ransomed sinners. And somehow they've gone from being sinners to being a kingdom of priests with access to God and a destiny of reigning as God's agents in the new creation. So they say, there's only one person that could have done that. Worthy are you. You took sinners and made them priests. You took outcasts and made them into a kingdom. You took a, a scattered and angry and desperate bunch of ethnicities, united them into one global family, and now they're a choir worshiping the Lamb. There is only one person that could do that. That could link together ethnicities and nations and tongues so that there's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And here they come together. How many people do they claim? Well, I know how to bring humanity together. We're going to bring humanity together. There's only one person who can ultimately unite humanity from every tribe and language and people and tongue. And that is the Lamb who died for every single one of them. So this heavenly court, they worship. That is the response. The response is worship, worthy. That's where the word worship comes from. It's just saying back to God, this is how worthy you are. This is how worthy you are. And I'm, I'm bearing that testimony to you. Their choir is then escalated by this army of angels in verse 11. It says the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, 
a myriad was roughly 10,000. So this is, if it was real numbers, it'd be 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million if you do the math. I, I think the point is supposed to be uncountable. And imagine for this little beleaguered group of churches that John's writing to, who are scared of the Roman Empire and a lot of pagan idolatries are in their age, where they hear, there's a hundred million angels shouting, worthy is the Lamb. So when you join your voice, you are joining your voice to the mightiest army choir in history. Do you feel pathetic when you come on a Sunday in this little gathering and you worship and it's a sun? I mean, it's fine. It's, we're doing the best we can. But you are linked to a mighty angel choir, more powerful and dominating than any army in history. And they have the job of saying, he is worthy because he was slain. They are unashamed about the cross of Christ and they shout with their overwhelming voice, worthy for he was slain. Every time you gather with this church, your voice is added to a 100 million strong angel choir. This angel army would have comforted the church because it would have made every other power on earth seem pathetically small. And it should do the same thing for us. Every other army. You know, in the Old Testament, one angel wiped out 185,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. And here we have 100 million of them. It makes every other army seem pathetically small. Little plastic soldiers lined up on the floor and you flop a mattress on top of them. They seem pathetically small. Here's a hundred million angel army shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He gets all the power. He gets all the wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And there's seven attributes to say, we're saying everything we can possibly say about him. The final climax Fast forwards, I think, to the end of history when the Lamb has achieved his victory, as Revelation often does. It bounces around the timeline again and again. And we get the future choir of new creation. In verse 13, it says, every creature in heaven, every creature, every, imagine that. Just go there in your mind and imagine that. Every creature. I think it's likely this is picturing the time when all enemies have been vanquished. All talking heads who mock Jesus and Christianity have been removed. There is no contradictory statements. There is just those who have been claimed and the warriors of heaven joining their voices together. And every voice is linked to this choir. And they all say to him who sits on the throne, sovereign over history, king of all the ends of creation. And to the lamb who suffered for his people be worthy, glory, blessing, and honor and might forever and ever. Listen, there is only one response to the worthiness of Christ, and it is the worship of Christ. We do not believe in a religion 
that is mere mental assent of doctrines about someone. We believe in a person, and that person is meant to be worshipped. He is meant to be proclaimed. He is meant to be exalted. There should be nothing in our lives that gets our voice shouting and our hands clapping and raised more than the worthiness of the Lamb, because that is the future of our lives. We humans were just a cold, huddling mass of pathetic humanity, fighting and devouring each other in the mountains. And Christ came to us, took our sins upon himself, rescued us from the devastating future of this world, brought us to the heavenly kingdom, planted us in his presence as priests adorned by his righteousness, and then said, sing! And that is your future if you are a Christian. So in the meantime, let's sing. In the meantime, let's sing on Sundays and in private and with our families. Let's sing. Let's join that angelic army and say, worthy is the lamb. Is there anyone worthy? Yes, there is. Christ, our hope in life and death. Christ, our savior. Christ, our redeemer. He is Worthy, and we are called to reflect that worthiness in our worship because he is the lamb counted worthy because he died for sinners and now and forever receiving the worship of his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we as your people exult in you. Lord, we, we consciously repent and turn away from other false passions and false guides and lesser enthusiasms, Lord, that can distract us. And we turn our eyes and our hearts and our affections and our joys to you. You are worthy. You are worthy, Lord Jesus. You have rescued us. Lord, how is it possible that you are carrying us out of this valley of death and carrying us to the mountain of your glory? Lord, you are worthy. And all of our hope, all of our hope, Lord, we reject right now every other false hope for our future. Ourselves, our race. Lord, the human race simply cannot save itself, but you, Lord, you are a redeemer. So receive, Lord, our song. Confessing as your people, we join that chorus by faith. You are our hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.
it is our only rightful response. Jesus, be glorified in our lives this week. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to welcome you this morning. If you need prayer, please come forward. We have members of our prayer team waiting eagerly to pray with you.